Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Over the last few weeks, how much have you been thinking about Dr. Seuss? Your answer to that question will reveal a lot about where you land politically and what kind of media you consume. Because back in March, Dr. Seuss became headline news, at least on one channel, Fox. Let's talk about Dr. Seuss. 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 In case you weren't following this story, here's how it went down. The estate of Dr. Seuss said it would no longer be selling six of the 40-plus children's books authored by Seuss. We're not talking about Cat in the Hat or Redfish, Bluefish, but more obscure titles, like the very first book published under Seuss's name. The estate offered very simple reasoning here, saying these books portray people in ways that are hurtful or wrong. If you flip open the books, illustrations of Asian characters in particular look like crude racial stereotypes. Anyway, on Fox News, what happened here could be summed up with one word. Canceled. Because some of his books contained racist imagery. It's like Dr. Seuss. Magic wand doesn't exist. Put the brakes on. Well, People at- are too scared. They, uh, they don't want to be involved in all of this, so they'd rather just cancel it all. And uh, listen. Got to stand for something. Well, do we- if you listen to this show, you probably have a different take on all this. You probably agree with Dan Pfeiffer from over at Pod Save America. This is not the banning of books. This is not cancel culture, however you define it. It is the decision of the people who own the intellectual property to not continue to publish it. That is the sort of free market capitalism that Republicans would generally celebrate. But Dan sat up and paid attention when this so-called canceling started taking root with Republican politicians. Senate Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy posted a dramatic reading of Green Eggs and Ham. Senator Ted Cruz offered to sign Dr. Seuss's books and send them to constituents as long as they donated 60 bucks to his campaign war chest. The Republicans do not make these decisions, and I wrap Fox News into that as the primary messaging vehicle of the Republican Party. These things are not just sort of drawn out of thin air or just like what feels good in the moment. There is a reason behind it. So it's distraction, but distraction with a purpose. Exactly. That's exactly right. Today on the show, if you're rolling your eyes at the Republican back and forth over cancel culture, Dan wants you to know these kinds of rallying cries work. And Democrats, they can't afford to ignore them much longer. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. 
Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we talk about how Democrats should respond to these attacks on cancel culture or the wokeness divide, there are a couple things that Dan thinks are important to know. First off, attacking cancel culture is basically an evolution of a strategy that's been in the Republican playbook for a long time. It's another way of saying you refuse to be politically correct. Second of all, cancel culture is an ideal boogeyman because it means different things to different people. But if I had to ask you to define wokeness or cancel culture, like, could you do it? No. Cancel culture is a little bit like fake news. It's a term that means everything and nothing. It's just sort of shouted out there as a signal to certain elements of voters. It, it If you say that the Seuss family choosing to not publish some books is cancel culture, then you have no idea what that means. <laughs> I mean, Perry Bacon Jr. at 538 basically talked about how this is a feature, not a bug, because it allows so many things to just get swept into this big umbrella. And yeah, you're just talking about everything and nothing at the same time, but you're very angry about it. Yes, you're you're yelling. It's very the, the key feature is you must yell about it. You can't talk about it. You must scream <laughs> at the top of your lung. Because what you're trying to do is create this existential fear among your voters that America is changing and it's changing in ways that are not good for you. And cancel culture is, you know, as broadly defined by the Republicans, is part of that. A writer in New York Magazine made this point that I thought was really good, that cancel culture, it allows Republicans and their supporters to pose as innocent victims of persecution rather than culture warriors themselves who are trying to change something. They're the ones who are having change inflicted on them, and now they have to defend themselves. I think that's exactly right. Victimization has been at the core of conservatism for a very long time. It is there's always some despite the fact that they have have every advantage in terms of political power in this state from the from this country from the electoral college to the senate, they're always the victims, right? It is the victim of change. You know, as Donald Trump, billionaire president of the United States was a victim every day he woke up and this is this is all part of it. It allows you to say that these quote unquote others, which is a combination of nefarious forces of Black people, brown people, young people, Hollywood elites, college professors are coming for you and your you know, traditionally American culture that you're going to be a victim of this change that Republicans are going to try to stop. That's what Make America Great Again means, right? It's, it's freedom to say what you want, do what you want, and be in power and not have to worry about other people. Another reason cancel culture is such an effective rallying cry is that it gets Republican voters to focus on what unites them, not what divides them. Plenty of people who vote Republican are in favor of stimulus checks or a $15 minimum wage, issues Republican politicians have been ignoring. But Republican voters and politicians agree on the cultural stuff, a desire to slow down the rate of societal change, a yearning for an imagined American ideal. And there's something else. Focusing on cancel culture exploits a Democratic weak point. Democrats are always going to be more divided than Republicans because the very nature of the sort of districts that we have to win, the states we have to win to win uh, political power requires us to appeal to a set of voters who are much more conservative than the median Democratic voter. And so we need Joe Manchin and we need AOC and we need everything in between. So there's always going to be more debate between us. This is 
I think where much of the intellectual capital in the Democratic Party needs to be is to find ways to tell our economic message that are as compelling and interesting and evocative as the Republicans have been able to do with their cultural issues over many years. But why isn't that happening? Like, not the messaging so much, because I feel like the economic messaging, folks are on the same page, but I do see the characters pointing at each other and pushing back on each other. And it's cooled down a little bit since the election. People are, you know, back at work and doing their jobs. But, like, I look at that month of December where you had Connor Lamb, who is a Democrat representing a fairly conservative district in Pennsylvania, calling out, you know, I had to talk about defund the police. And then you have AOC coming out and saying, this is a racialized critique. And when I saw all that, I was like, you guys need to get your house in order. (laughs) You know what I mean? If we're going to be fighting, if you're going to be fighting with each other, you're never going to get going here. And that seems like a real weakness to me of Democratic Party strategy right now or of the Democratic Party in general. And you're an insider. So why isn't this getting (laughs) addressed? Well, I think I think that there is yes, there we can always do more to have unity and these party debates are you know, I think they're good to have out in the sunlight for people to see, but there are also times when maybe uh, they can, not necessarily in this situation, but where they can better be resolved with a conversation between two people that was not mediated by Politico. But it's also, I think, <laughs> true that the division is gets a hundred, maybe 10% of the problem, it gets 100% of the attention. And when you look at how the party has reacted over the first, it feels like 10 years, but the first couple months of the Biden administration, we've been remarkably unified on a whole bunch of things. And uh, it is, which is really impressive considering the historically narrow margins in which we are dealing with in the House and then zero margin for error in the Senate. That's all going to be tested as time goes on. It always gets harder, not easier, the further you get from Inauguration Day. But I think the challenge we always have is the incentives for focusing on division are greater than the incentives for focusing on unity. The The press coverage is always when the man bites the dog, not when the dog bites the man. And we this is how we sometimes end up in these situations. I think there's one more thing that's that's worth saying, which is that this idea of cancel culture, it's not just a left-wing thing. There are also right-wing efforts to cancel <laughs> left-wing ideas. Like, you see this happening all over the country with local legislatures talking about, like, the 1619 Project, like, what we're going to teach our kids about race and the origins of this country. And so I just think it's it's valuable to look at this in this way, because it makes it really clear to me that this is a battle over, on both sides, whose perspectives we value and why. And it's not just left-wing folks flying off the handle. (laughs) It's, you know, it's, this is a really subtle conversation about our culture and who we're talking to and, and who America's for. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And this is why it's so important, I think, has to be stipulated every single time to recognize that the Republican argument here is very much in bad faith. They are not making defenses of the First Amendment or anything else. It is trying to protect themselves from being able to say what they want to say, even if it carries great offense, and protect themselves from alternative viewpoints. And yet the, the Republican focus on 
1619 project is the perfect example. Could you, this has become a huge part of Republican politics over the last year. And if you, when you step back, this is a focus on a series of articles, Pulitzer Prize winning, I believe, in the New York Times. But yet now we have laws being passed about it. We have people trying to put it in the Republican platform. And it is, I guess the way I would think about this is Republicans for political reasons, right-wing media figures for both political reasons and um, economic reasons go trolling for examples, real and fake, but most often fake, to try to as you say, to make themselves victims of something that is happening, even when that something is not real and something they are also doing um, on their side. After the break, can the Democrats make cancel culture a losing strategy? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Do you see any Democrats out there right now who are responding to this cancel culture, wokeness divide conversation in the right way? I think that's hard to say. I think Joe Biden is doing the exact right way, which is for Joe Biden, the best thing he can do is not get pulled into these debates to ignore them and, and do focus on the things that are very popular. This proposition is really going to be tested as the 2022 campaign gets going. Why? Well, because it like right now, when you are not in an active campaign, it's very easy to just focus on the things you're doing in Congress and the popular things that you have just passed and selling the American Rescue Plan and trying to pass the American Jobs Plan. But once you are running against a person who is attacking you on these points, who is trying, who is driving the conversation in your local media, at your town halls to these topics, you're going to have to find a way to respond. And we're going to have 2022 midterms. So people are going to have to respond pretty soon. Yeah, it's this is coming very shortly. And I am in no way arguing that we should ignore cultural issues. Democrats should speak up against racism, misogyny. We should speak up against the array of incredibly bigoted bills that are being passed targeting the trans community with a particular focus on trans use. We do all of those things, but we also need to move the conversation to places that unite us and divide them. So what does that look like if I'm a local politician in rural Pennsylvania? It is, I think this is the key thing here, and this is, and my advice here is based on how Barack Obama faced, deal with some of these issues. It's based on this a uh, document called the race class narrative, which gives messaging advice to Democrats who are facing, you know, very racist attacks against Republican from Republicans. But the idea is, you can't ignore the issue. You have to, exp and you can't buy the premise of the argument. Be like, yes, cancel culture is bad, but X, Y, and Z. What you have to do is explain why the opponent is bringing this up. So that would say something like. 
you know, opponent X is talking about uh, Dr. Seuss and potato heads and, you know, insert your right wing outrage du jour because they want to divide and distract you from their opposition to a $15 minimum wage. The fact that they, if they are elected, they are going to give additional tax cuts to corporations to pay paid for by cuts in Medicare is to explain why they're doing it. Because I think voters will get will understand that. They have a, a much more sophisticated understanding of politics than we give them credit for. So if you actually can speak to the motivation behind the attack and what it's trying to conceal, you will have success in taking the issue, addressing it, and then pivoting to much more safe ground on the issues that animate your voters and divide their voters. But this recommendation is easier said than done. Even President Obama himself has had a tough time navigating this terrain. A couple years back, he made headlines when he seemed to poke fun at online social justice activists. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then... I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. And Dan says Democratic responses to the culture war can get a lot worse than that because many political advisors, when they think about how to push back on issues of identity politics, they talk about having a sister-soldier moment which recalls this incident from back when Bill Clinton was first running for president. He wanted people to know he wouldn't be in the pocket of black activist groups. And then he made this infamous speech. I mean, I was in high school, but I, I, I said, remember it in the, in the historical rendering of it. But in the 1992 presidential election, uh, Bill Clinton was running for office and speaking at a the Rainbow Push Conference, which is the organization started by the Reverend Jesse Jackson. One of the speakers at that conference was an activist and a rapper named Sister Soldier, who had, who had performed with Public Enemy and some other groups and had made a uh, series of comments about white people and police officers that had gotten a ton of attention, uh, certainly uh, probably an undue amount of attention, uh, which speaks to some pretty disturbing dynamics in American media then and now. I think she'd been talking about the Rodney King riots. It, it was in the it was the context of the Rodney King riot, and I don't remember the exact quotes off the top of my head. I think she said she said black people kill black people all the time. So why not have a week where we kill white people? And whew, it's not an easy thing to hear. Um the full context was a little bit different than that. Yes. In that conference, Bill Clinton went out of his way to criticize Sister Soldier. When people say that, if you took the words white and black and you reversed them, you might think David Duke was giving that speech. The comments were very aggressive. It was seen at the time and aggressively pitched by the Clinton campaign as, as Bill Clinton showing that he would stand up to black activists, essentially, that he was different than previous Democratic presidential candidates. At the time, was it seen as good politics? It was seen as great politics at the time, and it's become this thing where people say all the time, when are you going to have your sister soldier moment? And what it came to mean is that you're going to go someplace and separate yourself from a constituency in your party in order to appeal to middle-of-the-road swing voters. But sister soldier herself, she saw Clinton's comments for exactly what they were, a political tactic. Here she is responding to that speech back in 1992. I do think that Governor Clinton was trying to um, get 
white support. I think that he was trying to portray himself as a more conservative um, character. Um, I think it's unfortunate that he cannot get white support by telling white people what he's going to do for them. I think in hindsight, it is a pretty gross moment. There was no reason for a presidential candidate to make this thing an issue and do it in such a blatant and I think pretty cynical way. And I, I do not believe that moment has aged particularly well over time, but it is something that people has become this dynamic of sort of political pundry is when are you going to have your sister soldier moment? There was some talk about this when in the post George Floyd protest, when is uh, you know, when is Joe Biden going to separate himself from, you know, some of the looting or rioting? Him? What's his sister soldier moment going to be? I think it's a very bad way to look at politics. And I have been trying to, I wrote about this in, in one of my books, is to try to not reiterate that as this example of good politics and try to treat it for what it really was, which is, I think, victimizing someone within your party. Even if, if just think about it this way, this is an activist and rapper who was elevated by the media and then turned into this sort of historical sort of punchline by a presidential candidate. I think it's pretty, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel very good when we talk about it now, but I think the conversation around a sister soldier moment has lost that element of it just becomes this like brilliant political tactic without ever analyzing the cynicism of what underlied what actually happened there. Has your thinking on this culture stuff evolved? Like you've been in politics a long time. And I just wonder, it was interesting to me talking to you about the Sister Soldier stuff, because it just sounds like the party's definitely evolved, but also potentially you yourself, and you're thinking about what the right response is here. It has. You know, I think some of the the core lessons for how you deal with these things are things that we learned from Barack Obama as you had a Black candidate with the middle name Hussein trying to win over very conservative voters in the, you know, all across this country. And so there So we had to think about this stuff a lot. We had to think about it and in some ways I think it was thought at the time to be unique to Obama. How how does Obama do this because, you know, he was in very uncharted territory running for president in 08 and then in that White House, but I think it's bigger than that and it's very, you know, the fact that Joe Biden had to deal with many of the same challenges. And these issues had the same effect with voters with Biden on the ticket as they did with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton suggests that this is a much bigger thing that all Democrats have to deal with. It's not something that is just specific to when there is a black candidate on the ballot or there's a woman running. It this is this is the next generation of politics. And I think, and I've I've learned a lot of lessons from this. I'm you know obviously still learning them. There are we don't have the answers to all of this, but there is, you know, the party has changed and, but the Republican party has changed too. And we have to adjust our strategies for that. Dan Pfeiffer, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you. Dan Pfeiffer is a co-host of Pod Save America and a former Obama White House staffer. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Carmel Dalshad, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, and Davis Land. We're led by Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>